It's crazy to think about how holy and awesome God is. If you're not familiar with the word holy, uh, holy just simply means set apart. And God is set apart from humanity in lots of ways. Uh, and one of those ways is, is kind of moral perfection. And um, what's fascinating to me is that the Bible tells us that we are to be holy like God is holy. We are to be perfect like God is perfect. And that's uh, that's something that, that is difficult, right? I mean, you think about God and all he created and all he's done and uh, the things we celebrate during this kind of holy season in our year. You think about all that, and it's just crazy to think that, that the Bible tells us that, that we need to be more like God. We need to be perfect because he is perfect. And uh, the truth is that, that when the Bible talks about disciples, and it, and it talks about being a disciple a lot, what it's referring to is, is becoming more like God. It's referring to being more like him in his character, uh, the person that he was. And Jesus came to give us a great picture of of what God was, a perfect picture of what he was morally, what he is morally. And and we went through for several weeks the Jesus experiment, and we, we tried to live a life like Jesus, and it, and it was really good, and I think some of us became more like Jesus. But but oftentimes when you're talking about Jesus and you're trying to be like him, it can be a little bit frustrating, right? Because you can you can quickly see, well, I don't I don't line up. Uh, my life doesn't align with his life and and you start to see quickly the the moral failings of yourself. And and what can easily happen is you try to be like Jesus is to go, "Oh, I tried to be like him today and and it kind of it didn't work, and so I guess I'm just going to give up, and I'm not going to try to do that anymore. And we become frustrated uh, pretty easily, right? Over the next six weeks, we're going to take a different approach, and and while we're still going to try to be like Jesus, I hope we are. We're going to focus in on the life of a guy named Peter, and Peter becomes through studying his story in the Word of God. I think a model for us. Now, Peter does a lot of dumb stuff, and, and he's kind of known for that. And, and Peter is not a perfect guy like Jesus was at all. But what we see in the life of Peter, and what we're going to study over the next six weeks, are some great principles, some great themes that I think help us to understand what it takes to become more like God. It isn't just about saying, okay, what is it that Jesus did, and I'm going to try harder to do that. There's some things in Peter's life that you see that actually developed his character to a point that he was able to live a life that was more like God. Uh, a couple years ago, Ted McKinney and I were outside of a subway, and I saw a girl with a, a, an upside-down cross tattoo right here. And, um, and I figured she was a Christian because I, I knew the symbolism behind uh, behind the upside-down cross that she had. Uh, and, and so I said to her, thinking that I'd strike up a conversation with the Christian, I said, hey, uh, why do you have that tattoo? And, and she said, oh, it's uh, St. Peter's cross, which I, I knew. Uh, and I said, yeah, do you know what that cross uh, symbolizes? Do you know why it's an upside-down cross? And she said, she said yeah, I do. Um, Peter was a guy that uh, didn't feel like he was worthy to die like Jesus. And so he chose to die upside down on a cross to be resurrected upside down instead of right side up. And I said, yeah, that is true. And I, and I, then I really thought, this girl's a Christian. And, and I said, um, are you a Christian? And, and she said, no. Uh, I said, well, why do you have that cross? And she said, I really liked uh, the, I went to Europe and I really liked St. Peter's Cathedral. And, and so I got this cross. And I said, I said, so what do you think about Christianity? And she said, well, 
I'm still thinking about all that. And, and I'm not usually this bold. And the next line surprised myself even. Uh, I said, how, how can you still be thinking about it in light of what Peter did for somebody that he considered his Lord and Savior? And she politely, which, you know, it, it could have been worse, said, uh, I, I, you know, I'm still thinking about it. And we went our separate ways. Uh, it's fascinating to me even thinking about that still today, that we as Christians... Uh, can look at somebody like Peter and, and what he did there, and, and, and it doesn't compel us to live more like Jesus. You see, something happened in Peter's life that, that caused him to get to a point where he followed Jesus so intensely that he refused to even die the same way because he, he recognized how great Jesus was and, and how unworthy he was. Um, a guy named Caravaggio, a famous painter, uh, my favorite painter probably does biblical scenes. Uh, he has a painting that will pop up in a second uh, of, of St. Peter's death. Uh, it's called uh, The Resurrection of St. Peter. And uh, before we put it up, you got to know a little bit about Caravaggio. Caravaggio was a devout Christian who intensely struggled in his life. He, he struggled with anger problems, uh, extreme anger problems, and he, he struggled with a major theft problem. And so by the age of 35, he uh, he was actually killed in a fight or something like that, and and before that he had he had been kind of kicked out of one country and kind of fled around. But he was deeply devoted to Jesus, and so when he painted scenes from the Bible, he didn't fit the time frame at all because in his in his time frame when he was when he was painting, you'd see these paintings of saints and of 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 Jesus and of Mary that were like otherworldly. But Caravaggio knew that it wasn't that way. He knew that the Christian life and being a disciple was a major struggle. And so in his paintings, you see this realism. You see this, this intense reality in the faces of people and the things that are happening to the point where I'm drawn in. And, and as you look at this painting, um, you need to look at it on a computer. This won't do it justice. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. But this is Peter, and, and you can see Peter... For all that he probably was, he's older, he, he has blemishes, he's wrinkly, he's not perfect, he has a pained look on his face, no halo on his head, and, and you can kind of see the gruesome moment where they are putting him upside down on a cross. And I think Caravaggio captures for me what we're going to be looking at over the next six weeks, and that is this, Peter was a very real person. Peter had his struggles and his difficulties and his life, but yet at the end of Peter's life, so much had taken place that he was able to go and live out this moment, at least history tells us. And so I think that the question when we think about Peter and what he did dying upside down on a cross is what took place in his life to get him to that point? And my hope is that, that you and I love Jesus enough to say, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more devoted to him. And I hope that over the next six weeks you'll say, okay, what took place in Peter's life? And I hope you'll, you'll really, because I think they're going to be tangible things that you can actually put into place, start to put those things into place in your life so that someday, maybe, you would be willing to die like Peter because you love Jesus and you're so devoted to him. Now, just going to, back to Peter and, and thinking about his life, just to give you a little background information on the guy, he was a, a regular guy. I mean, he lived a regular life. He was... Um, from a, a town uh, called Bethsaida. And uh, Bethsaida is a town that sits on kind of the, the intersection of the Jordan River and the Sea of 
Galilee, and it was referred to uh, in its first name as as the uh, the house of fishermen, basically. And and so it's this place that is just full of fishermen. Peter would have grown up there, and, and he would have lived a normal life, and then he moved over to a place called Capernaum where he started a fishing business. And when we meet Jesus in the Bible, Peter is actually probably close to the age of Jesus, uh, which would have been about 30 years old, and he would have been one of the oldest of all of the disciples. And uh, you can kind of see that in the respect that they have towards him and the way that, uh, that the way that they interact with him. And, and so Peter is, is living this pretty normal life. And it's fascinating because in, in God's Word, it tells us that he had a dad whose name was Jonas, and it tells us that he had a wife. And Paul actually says that Peter takes his wife out on his missionary trips sometimes. And we don't know her name from the Bible, uh, but history tells us, take it for what it's worth, that it was Perpetua uh, was his wife's name. And you say, well, why does that matter? And, and it matters because I think that oftentimes when we come upon the Bible story, we see these guys as, oh, they were disciples. But Peter was a person like you and I with a dad and a business, a job, and a wife and a family to take care of, and just things going on like you and I have going on in our life. And so I want you to see Peter as this very normal person. He was a normal guy living a normal life, and then something happens that leads him to being willing to be willing to die on a cross upside down. Something takes place. And and really, the story actually starts uh, before uh, Peter in, in the Word of God. It actually starts with a guy named John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, uh, he was the cousin of Jesus. And at his birth, it was prophesied about him by an angel that he would be the one who would, he would pave the way for the Messiah to come into the land, the King of the Jews who would set everything right. And so John the Baptist is born, and everybody's excited about him, and then... I don't know why, maybe this is what prophets did back then. He goes out into a desert and he starts a ministry. And you think, well, location, location, location. What's he doing out in a desert? And, and he's wearing camel hair and he's eating bugs. And nobody's going out to this guy. This is not a good church setting. But people start to come out to John the Baptist like crazy. Because they're recognizing the sin in their life. And they're recognizing that something is very different about this guy. And so people are coming out into the desert and he's baptizing them. Now, we're going to connect these things, but right before we read the part that, that connects to Peter, we need to see what John the Baptist says about Jesus. They're coming to John the Baptist, and they're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy who's going to set things right? And he says this, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, talking about the real Messiah. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. And so John the Baptist is out in this desert, and he's talking about Jesus. He's his cousin, but he doesn't really know. But then all of a sudden the dove comes down, and you don't know. I mean, is that like a shocking moment for him? Like, whoa, that's my cousin. He's the one that I'm looking forward to. We don't know. But John the Baptist is pointing people to Jesus. But he also has his own followers. Some guys that are following him around going, I'll be your disciple. You, you seem to be speaking differently than all these other Pharisees. You, you seem to have something going on out here in this ministry that is special. And so we'll follow you. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. The next verses after the ones I just read in John 1, 35 through 42. If you want to follow along, you can open up a Bible. Uh, verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. 
when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, The Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had, what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, who's also known as Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Now I want to pause right there and say, you're seeing this word Simon. And Simon was actually Peter's name. He went by Simon when he was talking to Greek people, or Simeon when he was talking to Jewish people who spoke Aramaic. And it's fascinating because we know that Simon was an uneducated guy according to the religious leaders of the law. But Simon would have been a person who probably spoke at least uh, on some level three languages because as a fisherman in the area in which he lived, which was kind of a cultural hub for multiculturalism, uh, people were coming from all over and probably wanted to buy the local seafood. And, and so Simon would have had an understanding of three languages. Now, we're about to find out when he gets this name Peter, and it will make more sense in a second. It, it says this, we found the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. And said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So he uses his dad's other name. They all had two names because of the culture that they lived in. And he looks at him and says, your name is not going to be Simon someday. It's instead going to be Peter. A lot of questions that kind of come with that, right? You'd like to know what else takes place. I mean, did Jesus say something before that? Or was it like, hi, you're Peter? You're Simon, you'll be called Peter, and that was the end of the conversation. We don't really know the other details of the story. But we do know this. Instead of starting to follow Jesus immediately, Peter goes back to his hometown. Now, they had been traveling, Jesus and Peter both probably, to Passover, and they're both on their way back, Jesus to wherever he was going, and Peter back to his hometown of Capernaum to, to go fish and to run his business and be with his family. And so they interact here, but, but Peter, maybe not knowing what this means, goes back to his hometown. And so for a couple of weeks, he's not Jesus' disciple. He is just a guy that's fishing, that had an interaction with Jesus that probably confused him. And so he probably spends these weeks thinking, man, that guy seemed awesome and powerful. And that John the Baptist person who my brother's been following was calling him the Messiah. And he gave me that name. And what's up with that? What does it mean that I'm going to be called Peter, which means stone? What does that mean? I don't really get it. And then we pick up the story in the book of Luke, chapter 5, and it says this, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Jesus comes into Simon Peter's town, and he is teaching people there. And when we see the, uh, the lake of Gennesaret, that is the way that Luke refers to the Sea of Galilee. They are the same thing. Uh, Luke uses the word sea for the Mediterranean Sea, which is much larger, and he calls the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, which is a fertile plain next to it. And so Jesus has come into Peter's town, and, and he's teaching the people. And then we read this. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, if you don't have the background information of what happened in the book of John, if you're just reading this in the book of Luke, then you think, this is kind of crazy. He walks up to a stranger and says, 
hey, go put your boat out there so I can teach. And, and you might think, well, why does, why does Simon, why does Peter respond to this in such a positive way? But when you have the background information, you know that Peter's already met this guy. He must think he's pretty nice. He has a respect for him. He knows that people are referring to him as the Messiah. And so he obliges Jesus' request. And Jesus goes out there and it creates, I guess, a natural amphitheater, if you will, for him to be able to teach all of the people from the boat. Verse 4 continues, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. There's some things that you need to consider here. First of all, the fishermen are done for the day. Simon and his partners, Peter and his partners, have already fished all night long, and so they're tired, and now Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to go drop your nets again. Now, first of all, Jesus was a carpenter and a teacher. Simon, Peter, was a fisherman. He grew up in a town that was called the House of Fishermen, right? And so he knows how to catch a fish. This Jesus guy, he might be the Messiah, sure, whatever, but I know how to fish. That's what Peter's thinking. Making matters worse is that uh, they are they are using nets that are called trammel nets. I, I'm not familiar with that. But trammel nets are, are made out of linen, and during the day, they're visible to fish. That's why they had fished all night, because in the night, the fish swim right into the nets. You catch them, and, and that's how it works. But the fish can see them in the day, and apparently fish aren't that stupid, and so they swim around the nets. And so Peter is not only thinking, okay, I know what I'm doing, you don't. Peter is also thinking, look, he doesn't even know that these nets only work during the night. And we tried all night to catch fish, and we didn't catch anything, so there's no way that we're going back out there and we're going to catch fish. Making matters even worse, if you're like me, I guess, is that they've already cleaned the nets. It says that, that they were cleaning their nets. And these nets took an hour or two to clean. And they would have had to, every time they put them in the water, re-clean them. And so to go back out in the boat and drop the nets again, set you back an hour or two, after you've been up all night long not catching any fish, Simon Peter is hungry and he's tired and he just worked a really long shift and he wants to go home. And Jesus says, hey, go do just a little bit more work. It's crazy. But because Peter has this, this meeting with Jesus before, he, he knows him and he has respect and, and he's heard him teach because he's out there teaching on his boat. And so he says, okay, because you say so, sir, I'll do it. Verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Now when you look at this, there's some, some crazy things going on here. I mean, he looks at him, first of all, and he says, Go away from me. Not the response that we generally have to Jesus, right? I mean, that isn't what we think of when, when we think of Jesus. We think about drawing close to Jesus. But, but something happens in this moment for Peter that didn't happen in his first encounter. He realizes that Jesus is something entirely different than himself. He realizes that Jesus is something better. Now, Lord is an interesting word in the New Testament because Lord can be used for the word sir. 
like I would call a, a, another person, sir. But Lord is also used in the Old Testament of God. And so when, when he falls on his knees and he says, go away from me, Lord, it's, the question becomes, what does he mean? Is he just saying, sir, is he calling him God? We don't really know. But I think it's something probably in between. Because it doesn't seem that Peter at this point connects Jesus to the Trinity and understands that he's fully God and fully man. It's not that far developed. But Peter knows that this is no mere man. He knows that this is something beyond him, something greater, something more holy, something more perfect. And so he falls on his knees and says, ah, go away. He doesn't mean literally get out of here, get off my boat. He means, look, you're beyond me, Lord. And then he calls himself a sinful man. It's pretty incredible to think about this because Luke is just about to go into a whole section where he talks about Jesus being the friend and the savior of sinners. A section of scripture where the Pharisees are mad because Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and, and the people who drink too much. And Luke's about to jump into all of that. And here we see Peter, the guy who the church would in some ways be founded on, the first leader of the church, the man who would die upside down on a cross, fall on his knees at the beginning of that section and say, I am a sinner. You see, in that moment, Peter realized that he was he was a sinner, that he, he was not perfect like Jesus, the one in whose presence he was in. And he falls on his knees and he recognizes his own inadequacies and his own problems and his own struggles and all of the things that are wrong with him. Peter recognizes that he's standing in the presence of one that is just greater than him. And he falls on his knees and he doesn't even know whether or not he wants to be in that presence because it is so great and so powerful and so set apart beyond anything that he had ever encountered. You go to the next verses, verses 10 and 11, it's, it's a, it seems like a crazy transition, but it's not. And it says, And so were James, John, and the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Jesus looks down at Simon as he's on his knees still and says, don't be afraid. Now, he's not telling him, hey, I don't want you to get scared. He's looking at Simon and he sees, according to the, the language that's used here, he sees that, that Simon is literally scared of his presence. He is fearful because he sees the greatness of Jesus. And so he basically says to Peter, hey, stop being scared. You don't have to be scared. And then he, he makes this crazy statement, you will be fishers of men. A more literal translation is, is something along the lines of, uh, you will fish for life or something like that. And, and it, was a, it was a phrase that's not used a lot in the Bible, uh, but it was a phrase that was used of a hunter who was catching an animal uh, but not killing it. Or, or of a, of a uh, military person who would take a captive instead of killing the person that they were fighting against. And so in this one word, what, what Jesus does is he encaptures what a disciple is to do. He says that a disciple is going to be somebody who is going out and reaching out and trying to catch, if you will, people for the sake of life. So when he looks at his disciples, he says, hey, when he looks at Peter, who's about to be his disciple, he says, hey, I'm going to bring you into something. I'm going to change your life in a way through giving you a job to do. We have this all wrong, right? I mean, when you explain Christianity to somebody and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, don't you just say you get to be saved from hell? I mean, isn't that kind of the language that you use? Yeah, you're saved 
from all of this stuff. But when Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter has just recognized Jesus for all that he is, he looks at him and says, hey, good news, you now have a job to do, and it is to go out and reach out to other people who are sinners like you and need to encounter me. And then it says that these guys left everything and followed him. Just pause and think about that for a second. I mean, these are normal people with lives and, and jobs and things like that. And it says they put their boats up on the shore and they started following him. You see, a disciple is somebody who gives up everything for the sake of Jesus. doesn't mean that we'll quit our jobs like they did. That's what needed to happen for them. But it does mean that we'll do our work, as we've talked about here before, for the sake of God and his kingdom. It means that that everything that we do is a part of the fact that we are connected to Jesus. We have minimized this idea of discipleship in our country today, and we've made being a Christian simply and solely about accepting Christ so that you might be saved. But when Jesus brings these people into a relationship with him, Peter being at the center of this story, he looks at them and says, look, your job now, is to reach the lost of the world. Your job is to tell people the good news of me. And and Peter doesn't even know what that is at this point. He's like, yeah, I'll do it. We know what it is. It's the gospel story, right? And, And he looks and says, your job is to tell people the gospel story. But not only that, what following me, what having a relationship with me means is leaving everything. It's saying it's all about Jesus. Now, I forsake everything for the good of you, Lord, and your kingdom. And at the end of Peter's life, we see that, right? He dies at the hands of the Roman government, and he dies because he's still trying to fish for people. He is still telling people the gospel story, and he dies because he refuses to, to stop following Jesus. He just says, no, I'm going to follow him into death. He leaves his boats at this moment, and he has hiccups and problems and struggles, but from then on, it's all about Jesus. And I think that Jesus is still commanding the same thing today. When he tells these guys as he's ascending into heaven to go out and make Christians, he doesn't say, go make Christians. He doesn't use that language. He says, go make disciples. Go make people who are like you, who have left everything to follow me and are fishing for other people. And so what I tell you today, that if you call yourself a Christian, your job is to lead people to Jesus because you have fully forsaken everything else in your life and followed Jesus with everything. But what I want you to notice, and this is what this series is about, it's about why. Why is it that Peter is able to do this? And it's plain and simply because in the moment of this miracle, Peter recognizes the greatness and the perfection of Jesus and his own inadequacy. And it's amazing to me that Peter recognizes this through the catch of fish But we have so much more in the rest of the Bible and we still sometimes don't get get the magnitude of it. We know that Jesus does a lot better miracles, a lot greater miracles, things that, that seem even crazier. I mean, I could get lucky catching some fish every now and then, but but not heal somebody from the dead. And we know that Jesus does that. And then most importantly, we know that Jesus goes to a cross out of moral perfection to die for our sins, and then he gets back up out of the grave. 
Peter hadn't seen all that yet, but he recognized the greatness of Jesus and it caused him to say, I'll, I'll leave everything for your good. And I believe wholeheartedly that if we are going to be people who take steps forward in our discipleship process, then it starts with allowing ourselves to be excited about and impacted by the fact that Jesus is so far beyond us. That Jesus is something greater. And that Jesus looks at us and says, despite your inadequacy, despite the things that you have done wrong, I still want a relationship with you. Despite the fact that you are a sinner and will continue to be a sinner, Jesus said, I'm going to give up my life for you on a cross. I'm going to die for your sins because I want to have a relationship with you. And so the first thing that I think we learn from Peter is, is simply that if we are going to be disciples, if we are really, I mean, because it's something nice to talk about, right? Like, yeah, I want to live my whole life for Jesus and I want to follow him more closely and I really want to reach out to others. If we're really going to do that and just not, and leave the, the theoretical behind and, and make that our lives, then it starts with being impressed, I would say, every day by how amazing Jesus is and remembering that we are sinners, and yet still He wanted to have a relationship with us. That's what we celebrate in communion, isn't it? Isn't it that that we celebrate? And that's what we're going to do today. And today, uh, the band's going to play another song, but, but as we sing this song and, and we move through communion, I just want you to think about that. I want you to think about how perfect Jesus is. We read about it throughout the whole New Testament, right? He's perfect, we're not, and yet He gave His life for you. And if Peter could be impressed by Him catching fish then I think we should be impressed by the fact that he gave his life for you and I on a cross. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just ask that as we go through this series, at the heart of it all would be our love for you. At the heart of, of this, this study of the life of Peter would be us remembering, Lord, that you are perfect and yet you gave your life for us who are sinners so that we could be saved, God, uh, dwell in your kingdom forever, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that, that instead of kind of just, you know, saying, well, that's great that Jesus loved us and all that, Lord, but I, instead of that, God, I, I just ask that, that through this time and, and hopefully in all of our lives, we would be impressed, God, and excited about, about you, Lord. Uh, we're never going to live for you if we're not excited about you. And so I pray that even this morning you would draw us into a greater level of excitement and passion for you and who you are, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you for dying for our sins, saving us from the things that we have done wrong. Amen.